Okay, we'll make a start tonight. There is no PowerPoint uh, dis disappointment. I left it at home again. And uh, my wife is not home, so uh, it's a shame because I spent a lot of time working on this. But anyway, uh, maybe I'll run through it very quickly next week. So tonight we're going to look at um, the subject really of, of uh, Puritan women, but I'm going to specifically focus on this woman, Brilliana Harley. Uh, whose picture you have there, um, that's drawn from a kind of miniature that was done uh, during her lifetime. And uh, particularly what I'm interested in looking at is her letters to her son, uh, Edward, uh, Edward Harley, who was the father of probably the first man who can actually be described as the Prime Minister of England, Robert Harley. Usually a man named Robert Walpole is described as the first Prime Minister, but Robert Harley preceded him. Uh, during the reign of uh, uh, King William III and Mary II and then Queen Anne. And he really functioned as the first of ministers. And that's her grandson. Uh, but the letters that we're going to be reading are her letters to her, her son, who is the father then of the, the man who probably can be described as the first Prime Minister of England. Uh, he's also the name uh, that, if you know the street in London, there is Harley Street in London, very well-known street because it's uh, a street where a lot of uh, really kind of high-end medical doctors have their practice. And um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, for example, uh, who uh, you may know the name, great Welsh preacher, uh, he began as an assistant to a man named Lord uh, Horder, who was on Harley Street, who was the Queen at the time, the king's physician, George V's uh, physician. So Harley Street, which is named after her family, um, is a very well-known, very prestigious street in London. And the house that she will live in, you'll see the house in a minute. Uh, at least I have, one, I have two pictures to show you. Uh, the, one, the one is on the second page there. Um, that house, uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about the castle primarily, but the castle and the house have been in the hands of the Harley family since 1066. So nearly a thousand years uh, continuous. It's a house, a lot of these houses are open to the public. Uh, this one is not, it's still held by the descendants of uh, Brilliana, uh, Brilliana Harley. Her father, one further point and then we'll pray. Her father, uh, Edward Conway, uh, is an ancestor of our present king. Uh, somehow it uh, works its way down, and uh, present king is descended somehow from her her father. Okay, we will uh, pray together. Our God, we thank you for the gift of this night, for the privilege of gathering like this in freedom. We thank you for this church. Pray your blessing upon it and upon our time this evening. May it be helpful for us uh, spiritually intellectually, and may you be glorified uh, through our thoughts and words for Christ's sake. Amen. So let me begin with um, some very general remarks regarding a word that you know well, and then I want to work uh, into looking at women uh, in the 17th century, what it was like to be a, a, a woman, a housewife, and then we'll look at uh, Brilliana Harley, a very brief overview of her life, and then looking at her letters to her son, uh, Edward, whom she called Ned. Um, the word feminism, I'm sure, is a word that you know very well. 
And generally speaking, when you speak to Christians about feminism, uh, the response is, if it's not mixed, it's usually pretty negative. Um, but it was feminism, and at least the rise of historians who are trained in feminist ways of reading history, who are enormously helpful for me, probably about 30 years ago. Uh, because in the early 1990s, uh, I discovered uh, that I, when I had been taught history, church history, uh, all I had been taught about were men. And uh, when I went through uh, uh, my basic history course in uh, my master's uh, uh, of uh, divinity at uh, Wycliffe College, part of the University of Toronto, it's known as Church History 1. I teach that course today. And then Church History 2. Church History 1 covers the first 1,500 years. It's usually given in the fall. Church History 2, given in the spring, it covers the 1,500 of the modern day. Um, I remember looking back and realizing by the late 80s, all I knew about were men. All I'd ever been taught about were the great theologians of the faith, uh, men like whose names, some of which you'll be familiar with, Athanasius and Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas and Calvin, and Luther, and Edwards, and so on. And all of that's very important, but I began to realize, and that because of feminist historians, began to realize that uh, there was a large segment of the church, in fact, half of the church, I knew nothing about, really. And it, it bore home on me because in my classes, half of my classes were uh, women. I was teaching at Central Baptist Seminary, and we had uh, both the seminary and the Bible college. And I'm not sure the percentages, but there easily were 50% of the, the students in doing a, a baccalaureate in usually a bachelor's of religious education or a certificate, uh, et cetera, were women. And um, some of those women would go on to serve in uh, Baptist churches or Baptistic churches uh, heading up religious education or women's, uh, women's ministries or children's ministries. Uh, some of them did come to get an MRS, <laughs> uh, that is to get married. Uh, that was one of the jokes that used to circulate, but I think it was to some degree unfair. But whatever the case, I began to realize I, I, need, to, I need to be able to speak about women in church history. And so in the 1990s, I began to teach myself uh, that whole area. Uh, and eventually eventuated in a book, uh, Eight Women of Faith, uh, which if you want to read more about, particularly women from the Reformation onwards, uh, I didn't know much about, I didn't know anything about Brilliana Harley when I wrote that about 2014. Um, but eventually that eventuated in a book. And I remember at Southern Seminary, where I now teach full time, um, Two young women, they were sisters. They were the daughters of one of our, uh, he was the uh, head of the music department. Uh, uh, he did the whole area of sacred music and so on. Remember them coming to me and saying to me um, uh, how difficult it was because Southern was a different constitution. It was a, primarily a seminary in, the, in the, the, probably about uh, 10 years ago. It's now become a very heavy emphasis on the Bible college there. But the percentage of men to women was like about 80% men, 20% women. And I remember these two women coming to me and telling me, and it was, it was encouraging because I realized that that decision to, 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 to teach myself about women's history in the history of the church had been right. 
And these two women came and said, you, you have no idea how difficult it is for us as women here, uh, all these men, uh, and how difficult it is for us to be taken seriously in terms of our studies, etc. And um, the reality is that in any, any given local church, um, except for periods of revival, usually the percentage of women to men is 60-40. 60% women, usually 40% men. And women have played a critical role in the life of the church. And uh, f far too frequently, up until the rise of feminism, uh, often got written out of history. They, did, they just weren't recorded, their, their, their involvement, their lives. Obviously, they weren't pastors, etc. But that doesn't mean that they don't play a critical role then and now in the life of the church, in, in educating their children, in participating in the life of the church in a multitude of ways. And um, a few years ago, about four years ago, I came across uh, Brilliana Harley. And I had never heard of her. Curious first name. Uh, that didn't strike me as uh, odd because the Puritans were had all kinds of interesting first names. So the names uh, which we still have today, Faith, Hope, Charity. I don't know if I know anybody called Charity, but I do know somebody called Faith and Hope. It was the Puritans who started that. And um, nobody, nobody ever named their children Faith, Hope, and Charity, whatever, before that. Of course, they had weirder names. Uh, so there was a man named Barebones. I think I might have talked about this before, right? Yeah, praise God, Barebones. And he had a brother. Christ came into the world to save sinners, Barebones. <laughs> uh, so some of the Puritan periods, you know, they really gave their kids a must have been a very difficult experience. So what's your name? You know, well, which part do you want? You know, came into the world, save sinners, uh, whatever. Um, so Brilliana, her father was a Puritan leaning in his um, uh, sympathies. And as we'll see, she is named after the Dutch city in which she was born, uh, Brielle or Brill, which is near Rotterdam. And we'll talk a little bit how she ended up being born in Holland, etc. But let me talk a little bit about uh, uh, the, the life of women uh, during the period we're looking at. And some of it doesn't apply exactly to Brilliana. She's married into aristocracy, so she's wealthy. Uh, but it's helpful just to get a larger picture to see what was it like to be a woman in this period of time. One of the critical things about the, the world in which we're talking, which is really uh, Protestant England, is that the Reformation rediscovered marriage. And uh, obviously there was marriage all through the Middle Ages, Otherwise, you wouldn't have had people around to do the Reformation. But um, essentially, during the, that long period from 500 to 1500, which we call the Middle Ages, I would debate the dating, but that's neither here nor there, is a long period of 1,000 years in which spirituality and godliness were seen in the avoidance of marriage. So if you're really serious about being a Christian, you became a monk or a nun. You, became, you, you lived a celibate life. And there were really kind of two levels of Christianity. There were those who were serious about the gospel, serious about Christ, serious about knowing God, finding God. They, they, they went to a nunnery or a monastery. 
Everybody else, well, you were second class. You, you really were not spiritual. And in fact, by the late Middle Ages, the word spirituality was actually a word that was used for, for monks, nuns, and priests, and bishops, and cardinals, or whatever. Uh, in other words, when, you talked, when somebody talked about, what is the spirituality of the church? They're talking about a group of people who are committed to a celibate lifestyle. Marriage was seen as second class. And you can go back to earlier authors like Jerome, who is the man responsible for the translation of the Bible uh, from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. The medieval Bible, the Bible that was read all through the Middle Ages, is Jerome's translation. And it would only be in the 1500s that you start to get men like William Tyndale, who we've looked at briefly, uh, and more detail last uh, in the fall. It would be only in the 1500s that people would actually go back to the Hebrew and translate from the Hebrew directly into, into, uh, into, the, uh, into the vernacular languages. In the Middle Ages, people obviously had vernacular languages, English, French, German, Spanish, whatever, but they read, they, the only Bible they read was the Latin Bible of Jerome. Jerome translated the Bible, and, but he says at one point, he says, if you look in the Bible, all the, the holiest men and women are all single. And he, and he says, there's a host, I don't know what he's thinking about, there's a host, he said, of, of holy men and women in the Old Testament, and they're all single. And to be honest, I can't think of any in the Old Testament except for Jeremiah. God tells Jeremiah, do not get married, because Jeremiah was going to be a picture of what God was going to do to Israel. He was going to leave. He was Remember the, the, the whole thing of God leaving Israel because of her adultery, etc. Uh, but everybody else is married. I, as I say, I, here's this man who's read the Bible, but you wonder, like, did, did, that, did he actually see that? He obviously didn't. Or Augustine. Augustine translates and actually, well, he does, the, he does three commentaries on the book of Genesis. He never finishes any of them. He starts them at different points of his career. And um, he's a great theologian. Um, in Genesis 2, he's got three major commentaries on Genesis 2. Uh, and he, he says at one point um, about uh, Eve, if she, had not, she could not have borne um, uh, Adam any children, she would have been of no use to Adam. And again, it, it, you've got this great man reading the scriptures, but he misses the whole point of Genesis 2, which is that Eve was created as a companion for Adam. And so during the Middle Ages, you've got men who know the scriptures well, but they miss because they've got this conviction that to be a holy person was to be single. And the, 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 uh, the, the Reformation rediscovers that for most Christian men and women, marriage is the pathway of their Christian lives. That for most Christian men and women, the life of holiness and sanctification leads right through a married home. And you have obviously then the marriages of people like Luther, um, John Calvin, um, etc. And so there is a rediscovery of marriage in this period. And therefore, along with the rediscovery of marriage, a rediscovery of the value of women who are married. And prior, prior to this, uh, for a woman to be valued as a woman, she had to become a nun. But there is now a rediscovery of women 
valuable in themselves as wives, etc., and mothers. And um, so what was it like? Let me shift from that. What was it like to be a woman in this period? And uh, we tend to look back and think um, uh, that in some ways maybe women had, or men and women would have had things easy in this period. But they are enormously busy. So, for instance, um, most women uh, who uh, came from the middle and lower classes, uh, their husbands worked in the home. So very few husbands would get up in the morning and leave at nine. We tend to look back at the, the, the nuclear family in the 1950s where the husband leaves home at nine, goes to the office or goes to the factory and works, uh, you know, an eight-hour shift, comes home at five or six, that that was the standard way back then. It's not at all. Um, because most, most husbands worked in the home. Uh, they had a craft. They might be a blacksmith or a cooper. Cooper makes barrels um, or what have you. And uh, they would have their shop in the back of the house. And that meant that the wife was all, often intimately involved in her husband's business. So she would be, uh, she might keep accounts. Uh, she might help him in a variety of ways. So the whole idea in Genesis 2 that the wife is a helper to the husband was realized in a very, very powerful way in many of these homes. In addition to that, um, she might keep a few cows for milk. She'd have to churn her own milk to get things like butter, uh, maybe even to make cheese. Uh, things like candles had to be made from scratch. Uh, pretty well everything that you think of that you go down to the local store to buy had to be made from scratch. And many of these wives then were enormously busy. Uh, no washing machines. So I grew up in the late 50s in England. can still remember people, women, hanging out laundry, right, on those, uh, what do you call them? Clotheslines. Clotheslines, thank you. Yeah, those clotheslines. I mean, you never see that at all, but every, every house would have a clothesline in the backyard. That's how you dried clothes, usually on a, obviously not on a, wind, on a, on a wet day, but uh, other days. Um, so all of that, all that washing, and the, you didn't have washing machines, all had to be done by hand. Uh, so for most women, life was very busy. In addition to helping their husband, they had a host of uh, activities that they had to do in the house. Um, most families, except for the very poor, had servants. Uh, even poor families. Uh, so that you have a range of poverty. Even those at the top of the range would often have servants, and those servants would live in the house. And so you have, you have extended households. Uh, again, we, we tend to think of you know, the traditional family, mom, dad, three, four kids. Uh, this is a world in which you got mom, dad, usually a granny or a grandpa, uh, maybe a couple of cousins who didn't get married, uh, and a few servants. And you've got really very much an extended household, very similar to the New Testament times. And obviously, if you've got uh, servants, that will alleviate some of the work. But still, for, for women, it's a very, very, very busy world. And... Uh, one of the women that I look at, this is uh, a bit later than the period we're looking at, we're looking at the 1600s, but uh, Esther Edwards Burr, the daughter of Jonathan Edwards, 
Um, she was married to Aaron Burr Sr., the president of, uh, the second president of what becomes Princeton University. Uh, we have her diary, and she hated Saturdays because Saturdays she had to make all the food for Sunday because Sunday you wouldn't be making food. And she had to iron her husband's clothes. And sometimes all she writes in her Saturdays is busy, 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 fly, fly, fly. That's, that's, that's her entry for Saturday. And, uh, but that, that captures very powerfully just the busyness. And we tend to think, you know, we're busy today, but the busyness of women in this period of time. Now, let me turn then to the sort of person that Brilliana is. Brilliana comes from aristocracy, as we'll see. Um, and you might think, okay, well, she's got tons of servants to do everything for her. But she, too, was going to be very busy. Uh, she's going to have to organize the servants. Right? You think, oh, it would be great. You know, sometimes my wife, my wife and I watch these uh, BBC uh, kind of historical productions, uh, especially the ones that deal with, like, Jane Austen movies. Who are, and Jane Austen is dealing normally with uh, people of the upper middle class. It's a group of people in England called the gentry. And uh, they all have servants. And so you come down to breakfast, you got it all laid out, right? And Allison says, oh, that'd be, that'd be lovely to have that. But the problem with that is you've you got to organize these people, right? You've got to make sure they do their jobs. Uh, you've got to tell them what to do, et cetera, et cetera. So for somebody like Brilliana, she's got, uh, she's got the household to manage. And then during the critical part of her life that we're going to look at, her husband is in charge of a parliamentary committee. He's a Puritan, and he's put in charge of a committee for the demolition of idolatrous monuments. And what that meant was he had to go around the country with a group of uh, presumably fairly strong guys with pitchfork uh, hammers and uh, uh, various uh, cudgels to destroy statues that were regarded as idolatrous and smash out uh, stained glass windows. So we've seen in recent years, right, people pulling down statues. Uh, we've had it here in Hamilton. Right? John A. MacDonald got pulled down. And I was afraid Queen Victoria was going to follow. <laughs> and, uh, but the Puritans did this aplenty in England, pulling down various statues of the saints, of Mary, and stained glass windows that were, in their minds, theologically offensive. And so her husband is off doing this. And we'll see he's doing this in the middle of a war. And uh, so she's got the whole household to run. So again, you think, okay, she would have servants, but she's also very, very busy uh, in terms of her daily life. Uh, one privilege he would have that uh, other women who are from the middle and lower classes wouldn't have had, she would have had the privilege of learning other languages and reading and writing. So I've mentioned very briefly, I was going to do a time on him, but I didn't. Richard Greenham was an early Puritan leader, uh, born around 1540, he dies around 1590. He's in a little village called Dry Drayton, a village that almost hasn't changed today. If you go back there today, it's exactly what Greenham would have seen in the 1580s. Um, when he went to that parish church, uh, about 800 people in the village, totally in the surrounding area, about 400 women, none of them could read or write. And so for many of the women, very busy, uh, they, they had limited opportunities for education. Women couldn't go to university. 
I mean, it's amazing we take that for granted. You know, I began the talk tonight by talking about women in my classes. Uh, that would not have happened 100 years, uh, 120 years ago. Uh, first woman PhD at, Ox at University of Toronto is around 1910, 1912, 1914. Uh, women couldn't go to Oxford and Cambridge until the 1890s. Um, and of course, you know, women couldn't vote. I mean, you've got a number of disabilities against women that have only relatively recently been overturned. Um, but women in very aristocratic contexts would have had those advantages of education, and Brilliana certainly does. Um, she's fluent in Latin, French, at least, probably Dutch. Uh, prefers to read books in French than English. And she's actually got a letter to her son where she tells him, if you can find John Calvin's Institutes in French, please get it. If, if you can't, then I'll make do with the English. And she, her native tongue is English, but she's obviously very, very comfortable in other languages. Well, let me turn then to Brilliana. I'm, I'm happy to take questions later that might relate to these earlier parts, but let me turn to Brilliana, and then I'm going to give you an overview of her life, and then we'll get into looking at her letters. So her maiden name is Conway. The Conways are a an aristocratic family that go all the way back into the early Middle Ages. As I said, the, the castle that you see on the, on the page, thir page three there, you've got two houses there. I'll talk about the, the house that obviously is habitable uh, in a few minutes. The other is a castle. And uh, this is uh, Brampton, Bampton Bryan. Bampton, B-A-M-P-T-O-N. B-A-M-P-T-O-M, Bampton Bryan, B-R-Y-A-N. Bampton Bryan Castle in Herefordshire. And Herefordshire, and again, I have a map and I don't have all that. Herefordshire is on the border of Wales. And um, it's, uh, it's an area of England that people don't often travel to. Or if you're traveling to Herefordshire, you're going through Heref you're going through you're going to Herefordshire to get through Herefordshire to get to Wales, and in fact, uh, uh, Bampton Bryan Castle uh, is on a major road going into Wales, a major highway, and that'll be why it's very important in the Civil War, as we'll see. And the castle was built in the Middle Ages, uh, but the land the, and the the ownership of the land goes all the way back in the Harley family, uh, back to 1060, 1066. So uh, her, her father, uh, Edward Conway, uh, was uh, an aristocrat. Um, he was the governor of a town called Brill in Holland. And uh, during the S Dutch War of Independence, fighting the Spanish, because the Spanish had owned all the Netherlands. Uh, in the 1560s, 1570s, the Dutch Protestants revolted against the Spanish Roman Catholic overlords and eventually would kick them all out. And uh, during that struggle, they asked the English for help, and they, they gave the English up, uh, a kind of three uh, ports along the North Sea so the English could easily bring in troops and weaponry and those ports were given to the English uh, in terms of governance. And Edward Conway was the governor of Brielle, or Brill, 
for, uh, during the early 1600s. Now, by that point, the, the War of Independence had ceased, and the Dutch asked the British, the English, to give the towns back, and the English thought, no, this is a good deal, because we can bring goods over without import duties. So they were reluctant to give up the towns, but eventually by the 1620s, 1630s, they did. So she's born there as the daughter of the English governor of the town of Brielle. And uh, her father, and there is a pun intended in the following remark, her father thought it was brilliant <laughs> to name her after the town in which she was born. So Brilliana. Uh, there's no, I don't know any other Brilliana in this period. It's a unique name. But from that point on, every, every generation that's had a woman, her middle name has been Brilliana. Uh, to remember this, really, she is a remarkable woman. I should mention I, I dis my discovery of her. I, I don't remember how I discovered her. One of the beauties of the internet, it's got all kinds of problems, I know, is discovery of things you would never have ever come across. And I'm not sure what I was Googling, but I came across a book of Brilliana's letters from which I've transcribed these. I had never heard of her. So I started reading the letters, and I thought, man, this is a treasure trove. There's about 450 letters in this book, published in the 19th century, probably 350 to her son, Ned, um, and some to her husband, and some to other family members. And uh, I remember asking a man that I think is the world's, one of the world's experts on, on Puritanism, which is Joel Beakey. He is down in, uh, he's the president of Puritan Reformed, Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids. And I asked Joel, I said, have you ever heard of Brilliana Harley? And he said, uh, no, who is she? And I thought, wow, uh, this is a, quite a discovery. It's, it's amazing. Uh, number one, it's amazing what you can find like that on the internet. And number two, it's amazing that such a woman would be almost completely forgotten, in my mind anyway. So Brilliana uh, grew up in uh, Holland, and uh, it would be there probably she was exposed to things like French. Uh, one, of the, one of the challenges for the English uh, going forward from the 17th century onwards, their isolation from the continent meant that they were not exposed to all the multitude of languages. Um, it, it really is, um, how would you, I'm not sure how you would put it, but um, it's amazing when you, talk, you meet people from Europe and the number of languages, they're quite comfortable in speaking. So we did a, I did a tour with Dr. Beakey. We did, um, we, uh, it was a Reformation tour. We started in Geneva, we went to Zurich, we did the Swiss Reformation, then we went to Basel, picked up the Rhine, came down, did the German Reformation, we did Marburg, Heidelberg, Strasbourg, which is French, and we ended up in Holland, in Dordrecht and Amsterdam. And we had three, three tour buses with three Dutch tour guides. And I remember being in a bookstore in uh, Geneva, and I heard one of these tour guides switch from, in the space of about 15 minutes, she went, I knew she was, she's obviously Dutch, so she could speak her own mother tongue. She was fluent in English, but I heard her go from Italian to French to German in the space of about 15, 20 minutes. And I'm just kind of, you know, wow. And uh, so that, it would be that exposure to Brilliana growing up in Holland would have given her exposure to a number of these languages. Um, she's married um, to Robert Harley, 
And I had a picture of Robert Harley and so on, but it's uh, back at home on the, on the flash drive. Um, she marries Robert Harley in 1623, and um, he's about 20 years older than her. He was born in 1579. She was born, usually 1600 is given as the date of her birth. Some I've seen 1598, but I think it's around 1600. So he's about 20 years older than her. He's been married before his first wife died in childbirth. And that's frequent in this period. Uh, we've forgotten again uh, how, because of medical advances since the mid-19th century, how uh, dangerous childbearing and childbirth are, are for women. And uh, so she marries uh, um, uh, when she's in her mid-20s. She's, she's about somewhere between 23 and 25. And she becomes then the, the, the uh, owner with her husband of this castle, which you saw at the, on the back of page three there. And um, he was a very prominent Puritan figure. And during the 1620s and 1630s, we've already looked at this, England is moving towards war, civil war, between the Puritans and uh, uh, who control Parliament and the king. And the king believes he can run the country without Parliament. He tries that in the 1630s, and it's a disaster. He gets himself into a major war with the Scottish, two wars with the Scottish. He loses both of them. Uh, he... Uh, has to pay uh, reparations. He doesn't have any money. He recalls Parliament, stuff the Puritans, and they basically tell him they're not going to give him a penny because they like the Scottish Presbyterians, uh, their fellow Puritans. And eventually comes to a standoff, and in 1642, uh, the king uh, leaves uh, uh, um, London. He goes to Oxford and declares war in his own Parliament. And you can imagine some sort of scenario like that of our prime minister leaving Ottawa, maybe coming to Kingston and declaring war on Ottawa. I mean, it's just horrifying. And um, uh, war is, war, uh, it was uh, William Sherman, the American general in the American Civil War, he said, war is hell. And there is this idea that grows up in Western culture and Anglo-, Anglo American culture that somehow war is a way that men are created in terms of manliness well I to be honest I think that's nuts uh, war war is just it's a disastrous experience uh, it is very important I we're not going to get into studying we, we talked a little about the Civil War last fall but war is a, I think a very important thing to study it's a constant human experience and uh, it's, uh, I think, evidence of the fallenness of humanity. Uh, I'm not a pacifist. Uh, in case you're thinking he's a, he might be a pacifist, I'm not. But I, the, the, the decision to go to war is just a very, dis, uh, it's, it's something that cannot be taken lightly, etc., etc. Uh, so, um, uh, Brilliana's family finds themselves, her husband's a committed Puritan. She finds herself a member of the aristocracy fighting against the, fighting against the king. And uh, she loses all her friends around her in Herefordshire. We'll see that. And she mentions that in one of her letters. She said, all my friends are leaving us because the Herefordshire, the county, was deeply committed to the king. 
and she's a Puritan. The king wants the castle because it's, it controls a major road into Wales. He needs it to be able to get troops into Wales. And so in uh, the early stages of the Civil War, in 1642, the castle is besieged for about six to eight weeks by about 600 men. She has 50 people inside, uh, women, friends. One of her close friends uh, has her eye shot out uh, by a bullet. Um, and she holds the castle. Her husband's nowhere to be seen. I, I don't know what he's up to. I, I've, I've been able to, I've failed to find out what the guy was up to, why, why he didn't make his way back, whatever means he could have, to get back to help his wife defend the, the home. Uh, I hope he wasn't around knocking down statues somewhere. And okay, dear, you can take care of things at home. Um, but uh, he's nowhere in the picture. And she has to organize the defense of the castle for those six weeks. And finally, the castle is lifted. And the, the, the royalists the, who are attacking the castle lose about 40 to 50 men. Inside, they lose only about four or five. Uh, they lose most of the roof. The roof gets blown off. And so the castle is drenched with, um, with rain. And, but she keeps, the, she keeps the family home. Uh, after her death, and she probably dies from something like influenza in 1643. The castle is besieged again. It, this time it is taken, and the royalists blow it up. And that's when you, if you look at that picture, uh, you can see the castle's in ruins. And after the, after the war is over, her husband, now widowed, um, is offered money to rebuild the castle. He takes the money, but he starts building that home. And that's where his family will eventually live. And they don't re rebuild the castle. Um, it's in a kind of obscure part of England. I've never been over this part. Um, I'm thinking I'd love to go over there, given my knowledge now of Briliana. But uh, we'll see. Anyway, uh, let me turn then to the letters. Uh, the letters are mostly written uh, before the war breaks out. In fact, all of them are. But I think what they do is they give you a fabulous picture of a Puritan mother uh, seeking to guide her son. Her son goes up to Oxford. Um, when the war breaks out, he'll leave Oxford and join the army uh, fighting against the king. So you should have that uh, text in front of you. And I'm just going to read through the letters and comment on them. And I hope you get a pic kind of a picture of Brilliana as a Christian woman. Good Ned, so this is her uh, nickname for Edward. Good Ned, I was doubly glad to receive your letter. He'd gone up to Oxford. We don't have a date on this. It's probably 1638. Both for the assurance of your coming well to Oxford. So he went in the, in the late summer of 1638, September of 1638. So this is probably October or late September. And that I received it by your father's hand, who I thank God came well home yesterday about four o'clock. I'm glad you like Oxford. It's true, it is to be liked, and happy are we when we like both places and conditions that we must be in. If we would, could be so wise, we should find much more sweetness in our loves than we do. For certainly there is some good in all conditions, but that of sin, if we had the art to distract the sweet and leave the rest. Now I earnestly desire you may have that wisdom, 
that from all the flowers of learning you may draw the honey and leave the rest. I, well may, I may well say she has about seven children who are living, so the rest are at home. I may well say you are my well-beloved child, therefore I cannot but tell you I miss you. If you would have anything, let me know it. Be not forgetful to write to me, and the Lord in mercy bless you, both the grace in your soul and the good things of this life. Your most affectionate mother till death, Brilliana Harley. Be careful to keep the Sabbath. That, it's, that's very pure. Uh, the Lord's Day is the Sabbath. Uh, their understanding of, of Sunday was that all of the regulations of the Old Testament are brought over to the New. Um, it's, inter it's an interesting letter. It's typical of her style. She weaves together little kind of um, uh, uh, statements about her life and how she got the letter, whatever, with advice. So she's telling her son, you know, she got, his, she got the letter. It came by her father. He got home around uh, a certain time, 4 o'clock, presumably in the afternoon. Um, I'm glad, you know, in the letter you like Oxford. And then she uses that as a springboard to talk about it's important to like the places God places us. Second letter. This is November the 13th, 1638. Good, good Ned, I beseech the Lord to bless you with those choice blessings of the Spirit which none but his dear elect are partakers of, that so you may taste that sweetness in God's service which indeed is in it. But the men of this world cannot perceive it. Think it not strange if I tell you I think it long since I heard from you. As you'll see, she's writing two or three letters a week. <laughs> and I'm not sure how often he's writing back. But, but my hope is you're well. And my prayers are that you may be so. If you want anything, let me know it. I have sent you some juice of licorice, which you may keep to make use of should you have a cold. As we'll see, she's got some remedies I, which I don't re necessarily recommend, but they may work, uh, which involve licorice juice, which doesn't sound that appetizing, but be that as it may. November the 17th. One of the words that comes up a number of times is sweetness. And you notice, we'll see that, and you, you need, to, need to take a note of that. Good Ned, November the 17th, 1638. This day I received a letter from you in which you write me, that you had write me, that's exactly what she said, but we would say written, written to me the week before, which letter I've not received, so I thought it long since I've heard from you. In other words, he had written to her, but she hadn't got the letter, and we're not sure if he ever, she ever did get the letter. Uh, there is no real postal system in this period. You would give it to friends, or oh, you find out, oh, I, I'm, I'm passing through that town. Oh, could you take this letter? You know, so it's, it's chancy. Uh, it's even chancy today, right? Uh, whatever. It is my joy you are well, and I beseech the Lord to continue your health, and above all, to give you that grace in your soul, which may make you a helpful soul, sound without errors, active in all that is good, industrial, industrious in all the ways in which good is to be gained. I'm glad you find a want of that ministry you did enjoy. In other words, he's, he, he's telling, he's told his mother, I can't find a church in Oxford to go and worship in. Uh, like the one he had had back when he was living at home. Labor to keep a fresh desire after the sincere milk of the word, and then in good time you shall enjoy that blessing again. The Lord has promised to give his spirit to his children, which shall lead them in the truth. Beg that blessed spirit, and then errors will but make the truth more bright, as the foil 
And she's thinking of when uh, a person is selling a diamond, they put it against a black background. As a foil does a diamond. My dear Ned, as you're being careful to choose your company, be so still. Now that she's, it's interesting, the letter, it's a typical letter we often write where you move from subject to subject without necessarily easily, you know, you suddenly jump to another subject. And uh, she's right to recognize that the people we choose for friends can shape us. As you're being careful to choose your company, be so still, for pitch will not easily be touched without leaving some spot. And she has a lot of these ready little kind of sayings. Pitch is uh, tar. And uh, you touch tar, it's going to be difficult to get rid of the, the, the stain. I've sent you a cake, which I hope you'll eat in memory of Brampton. Um, I've no idea how long it took to get from Brampton to Oxford. Uh, it's, it's not easily done, I don't think, so I'm not sure how long that cake is going to be good for. But remember, they don't have refrigeration either. December the 11th. Good, Ned. The means to preserve health is a good diet and exercise, and in some proportion is with the soul as with the body. There must be a good diet. We must feed upon the word of God, which when we have done, we must let it lie idle, but we must be diligent in exercising of what we know. And the more we practice, the more we shall know. In other words, again, this advice, are you reading the scriptures? Make sure what you read, you put into practice. Dear Ned, let nothing hinder you from performing constant private duties of praying and reading. So if you want to know what, what were the Puritans like, well, here you see something. The importance of reading the Bible and prayer. Experimentally, so geez, that word is experientially. Experimentally, I must say, private prayer is one of the best means to keep the heart close to God. Oh, it is a sweet thing to open our hearts to our God as to a friend. So if I were to ask you uh, to write a small little piece on, on Brilliana's own walk with God, a passage like this would be important. So she knows the reality of how to walk with God because she is a woman of prayer. If it had not been for that, I had recourse to my God. Sure, I would have fainted before this. By 1638, uh, tensions are rising. There's war in Scotland. And she has taken the side of Parliament. And she's starting to lose her friends. Her friends are no longer in the neighborhood. Aristocratic friends are not inviting her to their home. And she's really emphasizing, in the midst of this, what I had was God when I was losing my friends. December the 14th. Notice the, the closeness she writes three days later. Good, Ned. I commend you in my prayers as I do my own soul, for you are as dear to me as my life. And um, uh, the importance of telling those we love what they mean to us. Dear Ned, be careful to use exercise, and for that pain in your back, it may be caused by some indisposition, indisposition of the kidneys. I should have you drink in the morning beer boiled with licorice. <laughs> so next time you got kidney pains, there you go. I have, I, I have not done any research on beer boiled with licorice as to whether or not it helps the kidneys and kidney pain. So I've got no idea. She said it's the most excellent thing with the kidneys. And she had also asked him earlier if she could get, he could get her a book on uh, Calvin's book on the Institutes in, in, uh, in Oxford. Uh, for the book, if you cannot have it in French, send it to me in English. 
So that's where I drew that remark earlier that she was very comfortable in reading French. January the 4th, my good dad. Nothing here below on the earth is more dear to me than your well-being. It is that I pray for. And I rejoice when I'm assured of it. There should be of it, not if it. But my dear Ned, above all, the well-being of your soul is most dear to me, next to my own. Um, as a parent of whom one of my children has walked away from the Lord, although the Lord is, I think he's working in her life. Yeah, I know exactly what she's talking about. And um, I don't think... I, I don't think children, I, 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 I don't think most children understand the investment of their parents in their lives until they either have children or they're old enough to, to realize that. And, uh, you know, I think when, we, when my, my wife and I first got married and uh, we, we had children, my thinking was, okay, when they hit 18, 20, then our main responsibility is over. <laughs> it's just started exactly yeah the bigger the, yeah exactly yeah and uh you you don't lose uh those concerns and those prayers etc and you see this you see this very clearly here uh, with uh, brilliana or uh, january the 14th 1639 my good ned in the lord in mercy fill you with his grace and so you may be lovely in his sight. And if you're beloved by the Lord, it is happiness enough. I mean, some of the statements she's making, I mean, she's not a, a theologian. She's not trained as a theologian. She has read her scriptures. She has read Calvin and a number of these others, but they're rich, really rich. That's why I'm amazed that uh, she's, she's kind of being forgotten. I believe before this you've read some part of Mr. Calvin. Send me word how you like him. In other words, uh, what have you read? And she's trying to engage her son in really kind of a theological conversation via distance. I, here I have it here enclosed, send you the bookbinder's letter from Worcester that you may see books are not so cheap as in Oxford. The biggest town near her where she lived would have been Worcester. Um, and uh, books, books were mainly printed in London. Oxford and Cambridge would have a lot because they're universities. And getting them out to places like Worcester are going to be challenging. Um, transportation, uh, who, who carried them. Uh, uh, booksellers wouldn't carry the range of books you could get in London. There's a, whole, there's a number of streets in London still there where you've got book, bookseller after bookseller. It's absolutely fabulous. It's also dangerous for people like me who like to buy books. And... Um, but once you get out to the provinces, as they called them, places like Herefordshire, there's, there's no, there's no uh, booksellers. And if there are of them, they're very expensive to get books. And uh, so that's why she's, she's trying to tell them, you know, if you can really hinting at them, I think, if you can buy some books from me in Oxford, do it. Good Ned, this, is, this one has no date, but again, these are roughly chronological. Good Ned. I thank you for joining with me in desiring I might be able to go to the congregation and the beauty of holiness. So she's had, uh, in, in early in the letter she had mentioned she's had this cold which has prevented her from going to church. It's a very bad cold for about two months. It's interesting how she describes God's, 
people gathering in worship, uh, the beauty of holiness. It is true, my sweet Ned, I may truly say, one thing I've desired and will seek after, that I might enjoy these sweet privileges in God's house. But since you went, I've not had that happiness. The sharpness of the weather is such as I cannot bear it so long together. I must wait under the gracious hand of my God. Again, the sort of things that we have, the antibiotics, the various medicines. Uh, she's got beer, bold, or licorice. <laughs> uh, it's, it's humorous, but again, you know, the challenges that they had in terms of uh, things that we can easily roll with because of modern medicine, uh, she wouldn't have had access to those. February the 2nd, 1639. Good Ned. Oh, it is a sweet thing to a private conference of our God, to whom we may make known all our wants, all our follies, discover all our weaknesses, in assurance he will supply our wants and will not upbraid us with our infirmities. So again, if I were to ask you, you know, give me an idea of Brilliana Harley's prayer life. I mean, you've got to, that's a gem. Probably the best letter is this one, and uh, we'll close with this and then take questions if you have them. This is March the 22nd, 1639. I've had a time of sickness and weakness and the loss of friends. And as I may say, the gliding away of all those things I took most comfort in in this life. If I should now say, which I may boldly, that in this condition, oh, how sweet did I find the love of my God and the endeavor to walk in his ways. It may be, some may say, that it, that it may, must needs be so because all my other comforts fail me. But, my dear Ned, I must lay both my conditions together, my time of freedom from afflictions and my time of afflictions. And in the one, the first one, I found a sweetness in the service of God above the sweetness of the things in this life, and in trouble, a sweetness in the service of God which took away the bitterness of the affliction. And this I tell you, that you may believe how good the Lord is, and believe it as a tried truth. The service of the Lord is more sweet, more peaceful, more delightful than the enjoying of all the fading pleasures of the world. I mean, it's an absolutely tremendous uh, text in which she tells Ned, obviously she's had sickness, which has prevented her getting to church. Uh, she's had presumably bodily problems in that regard. She's lost most of her friends in the area because most of the friends were committed to the king and against uh, her political convictions and those of her husband. But in the midst of that, the sweetness of knowing God, and that, that word is very important because that word speaks of something that delights the taste. But here it's the spiritual taste. The sweetness of, going God, of knowing God has made up for all of the loss of those things. The loss of our bodily health, the loss of friends, the sweetness of walking with God has made up for all of that. It's not the easiest text maybe to read, um, but it's a beautiful text. And she's telling her son because she wants it impressed deeply on his heart that to walk with God is the sweetest thing in the world. Um, from what we know of his later life, um, uh, she does die within four years, presumably of, of probably a cold or an influenza, um, after the sec before the second siege of the castle. Um, her husband never remarries. 
He lives into the 1670s. He does get money to rebuild the castle. He doesn't. He chooses to build the estate behind. Her son eventually would inherit that, become a very prominent member of parliament. Uh, he is known to the king at the time, who's Charles II, who is a deeply dissolute king. Uh, Charles II is legally married. Uh, his wife doesn't bear him any children, and yet he has uh, upwards of 12 to 15 kids uh, with about 12 to 15 women, uh, or a number of women. And um, he had affairs throughout the country. Uh, you can actually go through England and find uh, restaurants that have the royal insignia on them, which means that they've been given uh, permission to advertise that they have royal approval or whatever. A lot of them date back to the reign of Charles II, when he'd have a relationship with the wife of the owner of the restaurant. Uh, throughout the country, you can find these. It's, he's a pretty godless man in many, many ways. And his court is deeply immoral. And what we know of her son, Edward Harley, he's politically in the middle of all that, but was known as a man of godliness and truth, upstanding, a man whose word was to be trusted. And it's very evident that her prayers for him and her building into his life paid rich, rich dividends. Because to be, uh, the Puritans fall out of power, they're persecuted, they're marginalized. To be a person within the centers of power between the 1660s and the 1690s, you normally were, well, you were exposed to all kinds of uh, wickedness. And Edward Harley shines in this period. And if you would ask one of the reasons why, it's almost definitely uh, his mother, this remarkable woman. Okay, next week what I'd like to do is look at John Owen, um, who is probably the greatest theologian of this period. So uh, we will look at a major theological figure. And what I want to look at particularly is some of his teaching on uh, the Holy Spirit and particularly Scripture. And then the following week, which will be uh, February the... 19th uh, there won't be an evening lecture that's reading week and so my wife and I are going away for a small vacation so okay let me close in a word of prayer <clears throat> our God we thank you for your work in the life of this woman and the, the testimony that speaks across the ages to us and uh, we pray that we might those of us who are parents and those of us who have uh, relatives who are younger, children, that we might be building into their lives as she sought to build into the lives of her children. We pray for our children, for those uh, who are walking with you, that they would continue to know your goodness and grace. For those who have drifted and gone into a far country, that by your grace you would bring them home to yourself. Now may your peace be with us, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.